good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. household name now in your house, Professor Larry Shub, virologist and uh, now community spokesman and uh, and the go-to guy on the coronavirus. I'm sure, are you sick of speaking about coronavirus, Prof? <laughs> no, no. Dean, I'm very happy to talk about coronavirus or any other virus. Uh, virology was my specialty. Uh, so I'm happy to kind of talk about it. I'm certainly not sick of talking about coronavirus. I think coronavirus is such a such an overriding important public health problem. Uh, yeah, generally and of course to our community as well. So I don't think we can talk too much about it. And uh, I think we really want to kind of you know, keep talking about the public health messages yeah. related yeah. to corona and prevention of corona. So I'm happy to talk about it. No problem. Okay, so where, where are we holding at the moment? I think one of the the greatest things, I mean, obviously I'm saying this from a, not from as a doctor, maybe as a religious person, <laughs> as yeah. a religious Jewish individual that Hashem has showed us or God has showed us that whatever we think we know, we don't know. That the virus yes. has behaved in every, every country differently, even within a country, different cities differently, and it's behaved in different people differently. And uh, every time we think we know something, we think a drug works yeah, and um, doesn't work. Well, then more research comes out. So, where are we actually holding at the moment? And let's <laughs> talk about Johannesburg specifically. Where are we holding? Yeah, you know, Gene, Dean, this is, you, you actually put the, you hit the nail on the head. You know, this is this is a disease which uh, an epidemiology epidemiology which is really flummoxed all of us. Uh, and there's one of my colleagues who says there are actually no experts in coronavirus anywhere in the world. There are no experts because we're all learning. And we're all in a learning curve. So where we where are we in South Africa generally? We're at the moment we're at a reasonably low low level if we compare it to where the uh, European countries are. The United States is they're experiencing very severe second waves. Uh, many of those uh, European countries, we have come down from our first wave, but we certainly haven't hit rock bottom. We are still averaging between one and two thousand new cases a day, so we haven't reached our baseline level yet. And once we reach our baseline level, of course, there'll be an interim period, um, and then of course there'll be an upsurge again. And uh, this is, uh, I think, going to be almost inevitable that we will have a second wave. What we don't know, and this we don't have those tools to predict, is how severe it's going to be, and also. When is it going to be? We, we can speculate. There certainly is some information to kind of guide us. Um, we're hoping that a second wave is not going to be in this country as severe as the first wave because in other countries like United Kingdom, the second wave in, the, in fact has been more severe. I don't think so, and this is what the evidence seems to be point, but I, let me preface it by saying that, uh, that we are in a learning curve. We could be in for surprise, but we probably won't have as severe a second wave, but we will have a second wave. We will have an upset. Are we going to have a second wave? Is that is that, well? I suppose nobody knows, but is it guaranteed to have a second wave? Are we? Uh, I, I, yeah, I think we can. I think we can almost give that guarantee uh, that we will have a second wave. The reason being is that uh, you know there is. At even the, you know, it's, it seems that we've had an extensive epidemic, 
but the great majority of people have not been infected. Uh, even the most optimistic data, and that comes from what we call seroprevalence studies. You know, we take blood from the population, we test them for antibodies, and look what percentage are immune. Even those which are the most optimistic uh, data, they show that probably 60 to 70% of the population have not seen the virus. But the, the figure is probably even higher than that. The reason being is that the, the serology, the seroprevalence studies focus on certain populations. So most of the population are still susceptible. That's the one thing. The other thing is, unfortunately, and maybe this is where we are at fault, we're not getting the message through that people still have to kind of um, do take all those precautions to prevent infection. Uh, and people are not doing that. I think, you know, we all kind of see it, people not wearing masks, people going to social functions, people not distancing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's, of course, going to fuel the second wave. That's going to cause the second wave to appear and also will make it more severe when it does happen. So to okay. some extent yeah. to some extent it's in our hands. You know, it's in the population's hands to try and prevent it. But uh, are we course, not delaying the inevitable? Are we not delaying the inevitable by I'm just playing devil's advocate by, by <laughs> delaying the second wave. Well, you know, the thing is is that the, if we delay it, we do make it weaker. Uh, if it's going to come as, as soon now, when we also, you know, the, the hospitals are under stress, uh, well, you know, probably even better than I do that, the kind of medical professions under stress. Uh, and we want to delay it because if we delay it, we also flatten it. We make it, we attenuate it. Uh, and also the, those things which delay it are the very things which will also reduce the severity. All those precautions, all those precautionary things. So, yeah, it's largely in our own hands. We can control it, uh, and we need to control it, and we need to get that message out there. Um, what about what about people saying that the, the second waves, I've heard some data that the second waves, people aren't seeing as many deaths or as such severity. They are, the infection rate is the same, or people are getting infected, but there's not severity. Is there anything to explain that? Is there any rationale or any science behind that? Yeah, there's a, there's a bit of science, when I say a bit of science, there's not conclusive evidence, but there is some evidence, virological evidence, in other words, when you study the virus itself, you know, viruses, well, you remember from your third year lecture, which is not that, not that long ago, which I gave to you guys, that viruses, they tend to evolve, evolve to becoming more transmissible and less virulent. Because it's really not in the, if you look at it, Teleologically, from a kind of purposeful point of view, it's not in the virus's interest to kill the host. The virus really wants to keep the host alive in order to spread it more. So viruses will tend to evolve by selective pressure to becoming more transmissible and less virulent. And there is some evidence when you do the genetic studies of these viruses, there are some mutations we do tend to uh, suggest, and I'm, I don't want to make it too dogmatic because these are very, very preliminary evidence, to suggest that the virus does become more transmissible and less virulent. It doesn't cause as severe disease and less deaths. Having said that, however, uh, what we see in Europe, in fact, is not quite like that. There's, they're, having, they're having very severe second waves in the United Kingdom and Spain uh, and many of the East European or Central European countries uh, like Czech Republic and so on. They are having probably as severe as the first wave, not more severe.
Uh, probably because there are more cases, and if there are more cases, there's going to be mortality. But hopefully it is going to become less severe. We're going to take a short ad break and we'll be back after this. Yeah, sure. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Professor Gary Shubin, we're busy speaking about the second wave um, of coronavirus and will it be so severe? And an interesting comment prop that I've never uh, thought about is that it's not in a virus kill the host. And uh, obviously they want to survive. So what happens to those more virulent strains? They die out with the people they kill and the non-virulent strains um, carry on or do they mutate into less virulent strains? Well, you know, I tell you the one the one prime example, one prime example of exactly that, where the virus has become very much less virulent uh, and more transmissible, is in fact the, the in fact the mother of all pandemics, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918-19. You know, that was probably the most devastating pandemic in history. It was estimated to have killed 50 million people. In fact, just out of, out of interest, in South Africa was particularly hard hit. One sixth of the population was died out within six weeks. So severe. It was one of the most severe in the world. But at any rate, that, that pandemic was caused by one of the influenza strains called H1N1. Now H1N1, in fact, is now one of our seasonal influenza strains, one that circulates every winter. In fact, you know, we have three strains and the H1N1, in fact, is the least virulent of them. And it's interesting because it was a very virulent strain in 1918-19 and then became very much less virulent, became incorporated into the human population as a much less virulent but probably more transmissible. So that's the one example. There are many others, not only viruses actually, other infectious agents as well do tend to become more transmissible and less virulent. Look, there are some outliers. This is not a, a, a totally black and white situation. But we're hoping that coronavirus, and as I said before, there are some genetic indications that this may well be happening. We Obviously, we can't rely on that. This may take five, six, ten or more years. But I think the kind of general virological wisdom is that this coronavirus will then eventually become one of the causes of the common cold. You know, there are four human coronaviruses which cause the common cold. Relatively trivial infections. All of us get them. We have almost no immunity. We get them recurrently every year. Um, and maybe those original uh, common cold coronaviruses, when they first hit humanity, also cause severe disease. And maybe this is what the natural history is. Um, this is what this coronavirus, maybe it's the first time, because this, this is the first time that's actually seen humanity. It's causing a more severe disease in the common cold. Um, but eventually, over a period of time, I'm talking about years, it may be incorporated. Now, this is a speculation. We're kind of speculating on the evidence that there is some genetic changes. Hopefully, it's tending towards that direction. And does the virus, I mean, it doesn't have a brain, obviously. What is... Um Maybe we can use this opportunity to tell um, some of our listeners how actually virus works. Maybe um, yeah. I'm only really familiar with your with your HIV and your um, how how certain viruses work. Maybe you can tell us what's the difference uh, between different viruses, how they incorporate in the body, how they sure. produce, and also um, how that relates uh, to Corona. Absolutely, no, sure. Well, what if, if viruses are very, very simple uh, organisms. 
they really what they are are infectious genetic material. In other words, it's genetic material. Probably most of the listeners are familiar with DNA and RNA. Those are the, the genetic codes for all living things. Uh, so we have DNA viruses and we have RNA viruses. And all the virus consists of essentially is that genetic material, DNA or RNA. We have two different kinds of viruses, which is surrounded by a protein coat. And the protein uh, has two functions, uh, actually three functions. One of them is that it functions as an enzyme, which the virus needs to replicate itself. It also has a protective coat, and also it's a way in which the virus infects cells. So uh, the virus has no metabolic machinery of its own. It has to get into a cell and utilize the met- metabolic machinery of the cell in order to make copies of itself, in order to replicate itself. So what happens in the, in the normal course of an infection, the virus gets into the body through one of the portals of the body. In the case of the coronavirus, through the respiratory tract, it then infects the cells of the upper respiratory tract mainly, but to some extent also the lower respiratory tract, if we're talking about these very, very small particles, the aerosols, but mainly the upper respiratory tract, in other words, the nose, the nasopharynx, and so on, gets into those cells and then parasitizes those cells, utilizes the machinery of the cells to make copies of itself, and those copies then infect more cells, and so the process then multiplies. And in doing so, um, it causes disease itself, but also the body's response to that, the body's immune response, also contributes to the disease. And we see this in corona. The early phases are due to the virus itself, the virus multiplying and destroying the cells and the consequences of that. And in the later stages, the immune response uh, is what causes, we actually call, we call it the cytokine storm, uh, is what causes severe acute respiratory distress, the severe symptoms, uh, and in some cases, unfortunately, death. So that's, 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 that's virology one-on-one, one-on-one in two minutes. Okay, I think that's uh, explained um, quite nicely. So the ulti- is this the ultimate virus, that it spreads easily, sometimes with no symptoms, and um, with no symptoms, and also when in the most infective states people are asymptomatic, it multiplies easily. Is this the ultimate virus? And would you think, I mean, I'm getting a bit conspiracy theorist controversial here, but was it made in a lab? <laughs> Yeah, look, uh, I, yeah, I'm not aware that there, there are any viruses which are totally, totally innocuous, but do spread. Certainly we do have viruses which are part of our cells, which are incorporated into our cells. They've always been there and are totally harmless. But it's not the same kind of situation as with bacteria, where you have bacteria which you actually depend on. Not only that they're not called disease, but we need them. We have to have them. Viruses, there are not really any viruses which we really depend on, but there are certainly viruses which are part of our cellular makeup and don't do any harm, but don't do any good either. They just seem to be there. But the the viruses which cause disease, you have a varying spectrum. Some cause very, very trivial disease, so the person is not even aware of it. We call it asymptomatic, right the way through to viruses such as rabies, which is probably the most lethal of all viruses. Once you get illness there, there's no recovery. So we get this kind of whole spectrum. In terms of whether the virus was made in a laboratory, <laughs> no, I think we can really put that totally to bed. Um, there, you know, one, one can synthesize viruses. 
For example, the poliovirus, a very simple virus that has been synthesized in the laboratory, in fact, quite a few years ago. But whether that can actually cause the same kind of disease, that's very speculative. Uh, but certainly viruses which got more complexity than that, there's no way that it can be synthesized uh, to the extent that it can be spread and cause disease. And certainly with this coronavirus now, there's no evidence at all that it was synthesized in the laboratory. Now, these are the kind of conspiracy theories which do develop. It was an accident to some extent in the sense that it did spread from the uh, animal reservoir. Uh, what it, you know, bats are the, probably the main reservoir. What the intermediate host is, we're not quite sure. There's some evidence that it may have been pangolins. Now, one of the problems in China, they have these wet markets where these live animals are sold um, and individuals, uh, you know, these animals are stressed, of course, so there's a high viral load in them. Uh, and it's not difficult to see how they can uh, leap from the animal cross the species barrier, barrier into human beings and establish infection. That's almost definitely how this arose. So it was an accidental issue from the wet market, but not, a, not an escape from a laboratory. I don't think there's evidence, any evidence of that. Okay. Can I digress a little bit on that, um, on that subject? Um, I heard about and, and with HIV that it also jumped across from animals. Um, apes in northern Africa when uh, they were being used and eaten for food and also at markets, often the hunters yeah. that would hunt them would have, you know, gaping wounds and gashes from the fight with the, the apes and that's where the virus uh, jumped across. Is that, is that correct regarding HIV? That, that, that is the common wisdom, yes, that it, that it did come originally from a primate source, from a, 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 a subhuman monkeys. Um, and then spread across to humans. The exact chain of transmission, of course, does, you know, there's no way we can really kind of pinpoint it. But we do know from genetic studies, if you look at the, um, the HIV, as it were in, in, in quotes, viruses of, of, uh, of primates, particularly in Western, West Africa and Central Africa, there's a lot of analogy between those, the sequences, and HIV of human beings. Um, so, uh, the anthropologists who kind of study these things, uh, in West Africa, primates are, subhuman primates, are a very important source of protein. Um, and uh, it could just be, you know, with the kind of skinning of the animals, uh, you know, there are cuts and grosses in the hands, that is kind of got into the body that way. And then once it's established in humans, was spread sexually, which obviously is the main route of which it is, uh, which it is transmitted. Uh, but there is a lot of genetic evidence that it did come from probably around about the middle of the last century, about the 1940s, 1950s. Uh, is more because it's, it's quite a recent virus, HIV. Uh, there's no evidence of HIV predating uh, that, and there, there is some serum samples which are available for testing, and there's no evidence before about 1950s. On the virus, you, did you? I, I don't know if you mentioned earlier that it's uh, what a, a, a retrovirus is. And that's why antiretrovirals work, because they stop the virus implanting in our cells because they can't replicate themselves. How yes. does coronavirus actually replicate itself in our bodies? And um, maybe you can tell us some specific targets of antivirals or vaccines um, that people have been looking at based on how the corona beha- replicates in our body. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, coronavirus is a little bit different to HIV. HIV is a retrovirus. It's called retro because the normal sequence of events and replication of in, in any biological system is from DNA to RNA and then to protein. Uh, that's a normal sequence. Uh, in the case of the retroviruses, they've got an enzyme called retro, um, uh, reverse transcriptase. You get a bit of a mental block there. Reverse transcriptase. Uh, it's the reverse. It goes the backwards. In other words, it's an RNA virus, which then makes DNA. Instead of DNA going to RNA, RNA goes to DNA. And that's why they're called retro, retroviruses, because you reverse transcriptase. It's the reverse of the normal sequence. Coronavirus, however, is an RNA virus, and that goes from RNA directly making protein. Now, as RNA acts as what's called the messenger RNA, it's a messenger because it transmits the message normally from DNA to making protein. Uh, so normally what happens with coronavirus gets into the body, uh, that RNA then makes copies of itself, uh, and the RNA, the original RNA has two functions. One of them is to make copies of itself, obviously, and the second function is to act as a messenger, a messenger to make protein. So it does both of those things, making copies of the RNA and making copies of its protein. That then gets assembled inside the cell as the, as the mature replicating viruses. That gets released from the infecting cell to infect other cells. Now, the thing is with, with, uh, with developing anti, antiviral drugs, antiviral drugs are very much more difficult to design than antibiotics. The reason being is that antibiotics are made uh, to treat bacterial infections. And uh, there are a lot more targets because bacteria are much more complex and there are a lot more targets that you can design a drug which is going to hit many of those metabolic pathways, those pathways which the bacteria needs to replicate itself and to infect uh, cells. Viruses are much more, much more restricted because they don't have their own metabolic machinery it's very much more difficult to design a drug which is going to hit the virus but not hit the human cell. In other words, you, you, don't, want, you don't want a drug that's going to kill the person. You know, it might kill the virus, but you want to keep the person alive. So the designers of antiviral drugs have got a much, much more challenging task to try and pinpoint a target which will hit the virus and miss out the cell. And this is why there are far more fewer antiviral agents even antiretroviral agents, antiviral agents, as compared to antibacterial agents. But nevertheless, they have designed various antiviral agents. Uh, in the case of coronaviruses, the one which is kind of mainly uses a, a drug called remdesivir. You've probably heard about it. Remdesivir is, a, is, a, is actually originally designed to treat Ebola virus infection, one of the viral hemorrhagic fevers. Yeah. Um, but it has shown to be quite effective uh, in the early stages. As I mentioned before, the disease is firstly due to the virus replicating and is subsequently due to the immune response. So these antiviral agents like remdesivir will really only be effective if given in the early stages. And the earlier Why the better. Because it's a, the earlier stages is where, is where the virus is replicating. Rapidly, rapidly um, same, similar and, to yeah, you can only so, attack replicating... Uh, Virus. Replicating virus, yeah. Okay. So when they're not yeah. replicating, you can't attack, you can't take. That's, that's attack. correct. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's the second phase where there's the steroids, such as dextromethasone, uh, and so on, where they work. Because there's the immune response, the host immune response that you want to dampen down. Because that's what's causing the, um, uh, the clinical symptoms and the disease. 
But the early stages where you want to hit the virus, and that's where these antiviral drugs like uh, like remdesivir, and also uh, antibodies, you know, antibodies from convalescent uh, donors, people that donate their plasma, or where we can make antibodies, that's where they are have effective in the early stages. Because you want to stop that virus multiplying. You want to dampen down that viral replication and give the body's chance to get rid of what's remnants, what, what's, what's left of the virus. Can you, can you maybe tell while we're on this, can you maybe, I, I think people hear all these things and they're so confusing. Why do other, can you maybe just tell us how the, let me try phrase this better, how the antibodies are made and is that the, which part of the immunity is, how that, um, how we attack the virus and why can't we get rid of the virus with our normal immune system? And then yeah. how does it help when we when people donate their antibodies to other people? Okay, Doug, sure. All right, well, basically when somebody gets infected uh, with anything, any infectious agents, anything which is foreign to the body, the body will respond uh, through what's called the immune system. It's part of the body's defense mechanism. And the immune system produces two lines of attack, as it were. The one are proteins, which are called antibodies, and the antibodies directly prevent, in this case, viruses infecting cells. They coat the virus, and they prevent the virus getting into cells. So that's the one arm of the immune system, are these proteins called antibodies. The other arm of the immune system is the cellular immune response. In other words, the body responds by producing cells, and those cells, what you call T-cells, um, those T-cells then attack virus-infected cells, and get rid of those virus-infected cells. Uh, and in that way, can, um, is, is one of the defenses in curing the, uh, curing the body of that particular infection. Now, once you've got antibodies in your bloodstream, those cells which produce those antibodies are called B cells, and they have a memory. In other words, they are now programmed. If the same virus or the same bacteria, the same foreign protein subsequently infects the body, those B cells will then expand, they'll be stimulated, and they will then produce antibodies which will prevent the infection from taking place. So we've got two limbs, two arms of the immune defense, those antibodies which aid in, in, um, in, in, uh, in recovery, we've got cells which aid in recovery, and then we've got the antibodies and the immune uh, memory which will then protect you against subsequent infection. Now, what we do now, so if we use a vaccine, what we do with the vaccine is that we we mimic the infection. In other words, use parts of the virus uh, to stimulate the immune system, so the immune system sees a foreign protein and therefore makes memory cells and therefore protects you subsequently. That we call active immunization because we're actively using the vaccine to stimulate the immune system. But we can also passively immunize somebody, where we take antibodies made by somebody else. In other words, somebody who's really recovered from the infection, they've got a high level of those antibodies, and we ask them, please, can you donate plasma? Can you donate your blood? We'll take that blood, we'll separate off the plasma, take those protein, those antibodies, and give it to somebody who's already infected, and use those to uh, allow them to recover from the infection. Do you call that convalescent... Okay, Asthma. Convalescent. Okay, we're going to take another short break. Sure. Got some more questions lined up for you after this. Thank you. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. 
Professor Barry Shu, virologist, about viruses in general and how the coronavirus fits into it. And we've been speaking about the antibodies and how they um, work. Prof, so when people me- measure now the antibodies, they go to the lab and they measure the antibody teeters. Does that mean that we are immune? And if, uh, or don't we know if they are immune? Because uh-huh. we don't know how it lasts, how long it lasts, and if they are active. Yeah. Dean, this is really the $64,000 question. Now I get asked that question innumerable times. Yeah, we don't have a definite answer. Let me give you the background to it. You know, there are are two main kinds of coronaviruses. The one I mentioned earlier, uh, the common cold one, which which have been in humanity forever. Now, those, those common cold coronaviruses, virtually no immunity. We get we get uh, the cold every year, and even with the same strains every year. So you look at those which cause a very trivial infection. There's almost no immunity, but then there have also been severe coronaviruses historically. There was one which caused an outbreak in 2003, the original SARS virus, and the MERS virus which caused a disease, severe disease, in 2012. Now the immunity from those coronaviruses has been very good long-lasting and solid. Now, where this COVID fits in, COVID virus, that we're still trying to understand. There certainly have been studies that uh, many people, if not most people, do develop good antibody teeters and good antibody levels, protective levels, which last for about four or five months. But how long, how robust, how effective those, that immunity is, that we, it's actually in a way still early days. We don't really know that. Remember, this virus has only been with us for, what, eight, nine months. So we don't know how long-lasting this protection is. And also, it's very difficult at this stage because it's a relatively short period of time to see how effective it is in terms of protecting individuals. So, yes, it's, it's, it's useful to go and have an antibody test. It'll t- what, it'll, what it'll tell you is that in the past you've been exposed to the virus, you've been infected with the virus. Unfortunately, what it won't tell you is that you're guaranteed to be protected from the virus. We may have that information uh, in years to come, uh, but at this stage we just don't know. We haven't got that information how effective that immunity is uh, after infection. And therefore we do, from an advice point of view, we advise people that have had the infection that they need to protect themselves as if they haven't had it. Why do some people not produce antibodies even after being well, what we do know is that people that are very mild or, or, or infected without any symptoms at all, asymptomatic infection, they seem to produce less antibodies, uh, and some even fact don't produce antibodies at all. It may well be that if you get a mild infection, you're not stimulating your immune system robustly enough. Now, it's not to say that there isn't any antibodies at all. Remember, the the uh, the test itself does have a limit of how sensitive it is in terms of detecting those antibodies. They may be there, but just at so level, such a low level that they're not being detected. But why some individuals don't, well, I think there's also some biological variation, of course, um, between individuals. But generally speaking, the more severe infection, the more robust the, the uh, stimulation of the immune system. This, that's, of course, provided that person has a healthy immune system. The older one gets, the more that the immune system tends to, like all other organs in the body, become older and not as efficient. And also people that are, uh, that are immunosuppressed 
either from whatever underlying disease such as cancer or if they're on cancer chemotherapy and so on or HIV infection, they, of course, also don't produce a good antibody response. Okay, and what about T-cell mediated immunity? Can people be immune without having um, antibodies? Well, they... Yes, yeah, sure. The, um, the, uh, the T-cell immunity is basically uh, those immune cells which destroy virus-infected cells. So the antibodies are what actually protects the body from being infected. The T-cells then kind of act as a sort of a they, – they, they are the vultures. You know? They clear up the debris afterwards. So they aid in the, in the, um, in the uh, recovery, um, and to some extent they will protect against disease – by nipping those infected cells in the bud, as it were. But the more effective protection comes from the antibodies. Do, other, do we often have uh, T-cell protection for other, for other diseases or other uh, oh, yes. viruses? Yeah. Uh, well, T-cell protection is certainly uh, is paramount for those, particularly bacteria, uh, which are in, which are lodged inside the cells. And the prime example of that is, of course, tuberculosis, TB. And, the, and, and TB protection is very much governed by T-cell immunity, by cellular immunity, more than antibody immunity. The reason being is that the, the way that the, those organisms get into the body is via, is, is through the, is, is via the cells, but where the kind of cellular, uh, entry is the kind of main route of in, infection. Rather than, for example, the coronavirus or any of the viruses, where the viruses originally get uh, land up in the secretions and only secondarily infect cells. Uh, we're going to take another short ad break, and then uh, there are a couple of more questions we can do before we wrap up. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson, and I'm speaking to Professor Barry Shuf. And we're speaking about uh, a lot about different viruses, virology 101, maybe as you call it, prof. And we're looking at how coronavirus fits fits into us, and we're looking at antibodies and uh, immunity, and talking about a second wave. Is yeah. there any other reason to believe? Uh, okay, you said us said to us, sorry, but we're going to probably have a second wave. Right. When I mean, I know it's everybody's guess um, when we're going to have it, but when does the data show? When does it predict that we're going to have it? Well, I, I can quote again my my colleague uh, Shabir Mahdi. He's he's of the opinion that what will be the driver of it uh, will be the the the, um, the festive season, because that's when people will be socialising. That's when people will be getting together. Sometimes, uh, sorry. Drinking, letting their guard down. And, and drinking, yeah, fueled by a bit of alcohol. And, of course, the masks come down, the distances are, are uh, go out the window, socializing, forgetting about sanitizing hands, uh, being in an indoor environment, all these kind of things which, which promote the spread. And the festive season will kind of lend itself to that. Then, of course, there's an incubation period, so give it a couple of weeks after that. And the feeling... According to him, and I, I think he's probably correct, uh, that around January, maybe February, we're going to be hit with a second wave. Um, but remember, we haven't actually come down from our first wave yet. We're still kind of grumbling on uh, at a thousand to two thousand new cases a day, um, and uh, we we haven't kind of come out of that yet. 
Um, when, you know, does the, it, this, when is the first wave set to be over? Well, this is it. You know, how do, how does one define it? Well, normally kind of defines when it comes right down to only maybe a few cases, a few new cases. When I say a few, I mean certainly less than a hundred, maybe even less than fifty cases per day. And, and, and a sustained, for a sustained period, for at least a couple of weeks. Now we know in year that the lowest that we've gone down to, I think was about eight or nine hundred a few weeks ago. But now it's gone well back up to one thousand, up to two thousand. So we still look, we still in this, in that, in that first wave. Um, now how long that, you know, when, when we'll come out of that, uh, is anybody's guess because it really depends on the population's behavior. Um, you know, if, if, uh, if people wore masks and, uh, and there has been a mathematical modeling study done that if 80% or I think it's if 80% of the people wore masks 80% of the time when they're in the, in the public arena, then the, the, uh, then we'd reach herd immunity. And, uh, you know, people are relying on vaccines, but vaccines won't on their own get us to herd immunity. What I mean by herd immunity is when the population has reached a threshold of immunity so that the virus, the epidemic will, will go down. The virus won't disappear. There's only one virus which has disappeared and that's smallpox. Uh, the virus won't disappear, but the epidemic curve will come down. So again, we, what, you know, we, we asked, you know, when will we get a second wave? How severe will the second wave? It's in our hands. People, it's people will govern it. People's behavior will govern that. And that's okay. really more distancing, etc. Okay. Now, last uh, two, three minutes. Um, do we know how far we are with different vaccines and what the targets are and when we'll expect some rollout? Yeah. You, you know, this is a subject of intensive research. You know, there are over 250 uh, candidate vaccines being evaluated. 52 on clinical trials. With, with human human volunteers and 10 in the advanced clinical trials, what we call the phase 3 trials. So, of course, no vaccines are licensed as yet. No vaccines have reached a stage where any licensing authority is confident enough to license a vaccine. The first vaccines will probably be licensed towards the end of the year. That doesn't mean that's going to be available because remember, still after, after vaccine is licensed, the individual countries' licensing authorities have to license it. And more importantly, also, it has to be manufactured. And we're talking about billions of doses. So probably in this country, we're really looking only about the middle, maybe latter part of the year. But again, I must emphasize, that's not going to get rid of the virus, and it's not going to get rid of the epidemic if we don't carry out all the other things. Now we're looking at a, probably an efficacy of about 60%. And the vaccine coverage will, will be what? Also about 60%. That means the, the immunity in the population will be what? 36%. And we need to try and get up to 60% immunity in the population to control the epidemic. So we still have to rely on the master distancing, the socializing, etc. So we need to get into those habits. We need to maintain those habits. And it's going to be around for a while. It's going to be around for a while, for quite a while. So, yeah. this now, is the new the, normal. It's a new normal. Also, what I, what I think is important to explain to people that, like uh, a few years ago, there was, you know, you have measles outbreaks and you have mumps outbreaks, and most of the children, thank God, in our community have been immunized. But just because they've been immunized doesn't mean that they're going to be immune because only a certain percentage of those people will produce antibodies. And I guess it's going to be the same with the corona vaccine.
We, the same, but, but not nearly as good. You know, with measles, measles, we've got a fantastically good vaccine. Excellent vaccine. The problem is the people that don't get vaccinated. But, uh, the immunity, the, uh, immune response from a measles vaccine is about, oh, 90, 95%, 96%. With the corona, we're looking at 60%, maybe 70% if we're lucky. So we've got a much, much less effective vaccine for coronavirus. So this is why the measles, the mumps, the rubella, the polio, all those vaccines are exceedingly effective. We just need people to, mothers to, to have their children vaccinated. Fantastic. Well, Prof, we've got to leave it there. Always a pleasure talking to you. Thank, Thank you, you very Thanks much for joining Thanks. us. Okay. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for joining us on 101.9 High FM. This came Medical Monday. Have a great week. Stay safe. Wear your masks. Sanitize. And we'll see you then.